Welcome back to the Our Common Salvation podcast in our current series that we've titled, What Hath Jerusalem to Do with Athens? A History of Soul Care in the Church and in the Culture. This week, Table Talk, Soul Care Among the Protestant Reformers. Well, when we last left our story, we were considering the darkness of the Middle Ages prior to the dawn of the Reformation. Now, there were some bright lights, but just some. Uh, Benedict, Gregory, Francis, and possibly Aquinas, depending upon what you're highlighting in his life and ministry. They didn't call him the Dark Ages for nothing, folks. This was a shadowy, gloomy, murky area for Western humanity on many levels, the church included. Let's let Morton Hunt sketch the portrait of the medieval era once again for us. Quote, The Hundred Years' War and the Black Death and other epidemics of the 14th century played havoc with the social order. In such a world, few were motivated to explore the human psyche scientifically or philosophically. Understanding the mind and the emotions, at least in Western Europe, was back to where it had been several thousand years earlier, end quote. So what exactly did this mean for the state of soul care in this period in history? Well, it had a devastating impact. It stands to reason that the most accurate gauge for the state of soul care is found in the quality of its primary caregivers, right? So how was the pastorate doing in the middle of the 15th century, for example? How were the physicians of souls themselves getting along? What exactly was the quality of gospel ministry in, let's say, the 1400s? Well, to be sure, it varied, but probably most commonly uh, was to be found on the spectrum from bad to worse. Historian Derek Tidball explains the following, quote, Consider the manuals for the clergy that survive from the 15th century. John Merck's poem, Instructions for Parish Priests, is thought to have been written in 1450. John Merck was canon of Lillishall, and this work gives a rare insight into the instructions given to priests during the Middle, Middle Ages. In doing so, it reveals the nature and state of the priesthood at that time. It begins by stressing the importance of preaching, but then says nothing more about how it is to be done. It is clear that ignorant clergy abounded everywhere and were considered to be doing a great evil in the church. At one stage in the poem, uh, line 623 to 626, priests are instructed not to baptize if they are drunk, because they would not be in control of their speech. Among other duties referred to is the care of the graveyard. Okay, what a metaphor. Back to the quote. The priests of the new covenant had sold their birthright for a mess of pottage. Nothing less than a radical renewal of the church seemed capable of making any impression on the generations of false shepherds who, rather than feeding their sheep, looked after their own interests while their flock suffered the ravages of wolves. End quote. Again, those were the words of uh, Derek Tidball in his wonderful book, Skillful Shepherds, Explorations in Pastoral Theology from 1986. So pastors had gone from servants of the word of God to keepers of the cemeteries of men. 
Who would come to step into the vacuum at this crucial moment in the history of the church in order to breathe life into the deadness of the care and the cure of souls? Well, that man is Martin Luther. Luther was born in the year 1483, and he died in 1546, making him 63 when he went to be with the Lord. Luther's aims were not modest, nothing less than the reformation of the Church of Jesus Christ would do. As one author writes, quote, Martin Luther set about demolishing the medieval view of the papacy and priesthood. The ministry became a ministry of the word and the pastor as teacher of the flock, not a dispenser of the sacraments. Pastoral care took the form of the application of the word of God to the needs of the people and the encouragement of the people to have faith in that word, end quote. Now that reality sets the trajectory here. The care and the cure of souls, really for the first time since Gregory the Great, a thousand years earlier, is once again moving the direction, uh, moving in the direction of the personal ministry of the word of God making application of the person and work of Jesus Christ as found in the scriptures to the daily life and health of God's people brought home by the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of personal relationship and conversation. Now, Luther is often heralded as a theological juggernaut, and he certainly is that, but he was no less a pastor than a theologian. He was a pastor theologian. He was a theologian pastor. He was a soul care physician as much as he was a scholar. Simply put, Luther loved biblical counseling, and his ministry is one of great significance as it relates to the care of souls. Now, before we get to his soul care, let's take a look at the recreation of his own soul. Uh, the story of Luther's conversion is nothing short of volcanic. Uh, born in Germany, the son of a copper miner, it was the hope of his father that Luther would be a lawyer. Luther had his bachelor's degree in hand by the year 1502 and completed his master's in 1505. This makes him about 22 years old. And it was at the age of 22 when titanic shifts begin to occur in his own life. On July 2nd of that year, he's nearly struck by lightning and he's shaken to the core as he cries out in good Catholic fashion, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. So that's what he did. And for the next four years, he labored in an Augustinian order in the town of Erfurt. Along the way, he was ordained as a priest, though he never truly experienced peace with God. Luther was a man that genuinely felt that God was mad at him, angry at his sin. At one point, reflecting on his early life, he said, If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. Now, he evidently had read Psalm chapter 5, verse 5, which says of God, You hate all evildoers. He also knew Romans 1.18, which racked him with guilt, as it's designed to do. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Well, Luther believed those texts. He was a Bible believer. Now, he was a teacher, but for the first four years in the monastery, he was only allowed as a rookie instructor to teach philosophy, uh, namely just to teach Aristotle. But in the year 1509, Luther was permitted to begin teaching the Bible. And three years later, he received his doctorate and was stationed at the University of Wittenberg. 
And it took him nine years of teaching Holy Scripture to come to the point of absolute desperation before this righteous God. If Luther knew anything from his study of Scripture, it was that God is righteous and Martin Luther is not. And Romans seemed to teach this with as much unrelenting force as any part of the Bible. So here's the story of his own conversion in his own words. It's a stunning account. Listen to Luther talk about meeting his maker and the terms that he found, the terms of peace that he found in the gospel. This is an extended quote here. Uh, Luther writes, I had indeed been captivated with extraordinary ardor for understanding Paul in the epistle to the Romans. But up till then, it was a single word in chapter 1, verse 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which, according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically regarding the formal or active righteousness, as they called it, with which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God and with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous, righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desire, desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of those words. Namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he, th he, through he who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. Here, a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon, I ran through the scriptures from memory and extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which before I had hated the word righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. So there's where Luther begins to live. Luther is born again. His soul is saved as he believes in the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. The Bible was for Luther the source of all the health of his soul. And so it stands to reason that it was this same Bible that he simply wanted to unleash in the lives of those around him. And whether through the translation of his translation of the scriptures into the German tongue, which he completed by its entirety in 1534, or in the work of daily soul care that, and counseling that he carried on until the day that he died. Uh, the title of this uh, particular podcast is 
table talk. We take that from Luther. Luther would have his associates, his mentees, and his disciples around him in the home at the kitchen table, and they'd talk. <laughs> Somebody wrote it down. You can find the volume of Luther's a volume of Luther's table talks uh, still today. It's a collection of his sayings captured by Johannes Matthias. Uh, not all of it's flattering. Luther did say some awful and indefensible things. Those are in there too. But he loved the personal ministry one-on-one -on -one of the Word of God. He counseled out of his own experience, and he did so with great effect. For example, if, if Luther knew any facet of the fallen human heart, it had to be anxiety. Remember, this is the man who said, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. So Luther understood worry and anxiety and fear. So he was able to counsel fearful people with profundity. He once wrote a letter counseling an anxious man with these words, quote, our consolations are to be drawn from the holy scriptures. Consider the evil within us, the evil before us, the evil behind us, the evil on our left hand, the evil on our right hand, the evil beneath us, and the evil above. You say, he said that to someone with anxiety issues? <laughs> sure, absolutely. I mean, the one thing the anxious person needs, uh, but never really seems to see, is that we have met the enemy and he is us. Well, Luther explains, this is most certain and true. We may believe it or not that no suffering in a man's experience, be it ever so severe, can be the greatest of the evils that are within him. So many more and far greater evils are there within him than any that he feels. And if he were to feel those evils, he would feel all the pains of hell, for he holds a hell within himself. And then it's just Bible passage after Bible passage. Uh, he uh, unfolds Hebrews, Ecclesiastes, Psalms, Romans, Jeremiah, Job, 1 Corinthians. Um, to his, his point to the man that he's writing to is that your suffering doesn't even begin to compare with your sinning. And then he writes to this man, quote, That man loves God his father but little, who does not prefer the evil of dying to the evil of sinning. And then regarding suffering, he says, We should feel no more surprise if... Among so many and great blessings, there be some intermingling of bitterness, since even for epicures, that is, lovers of pleasure, no meat is savory with salt, nor scarce any dish palatable that has not a certain bitter savor, either native or produced by seasoning. So intolerable is a continual and relieved sweetness that it has truly been said, every pleasure too long continued begets disgust." End quote. Well, we could go on like this, but it, but it gives you a taste. Luther was a stunning soul care physician for many reasons. Chief among them was that Luther wasn't just a theologian. He was a counselor. He was a minister of God to the cure of the souls of those around him. Luther was a counselor. Now, next episode, we'll consider some other luminaries from the age of the Reformation, beginning with Martin Bootser, John Calvin, and then on to John Knox. Until then, grace and peace.